Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. A chapter. Wow. Let's pray. (laughs) And then we'll figure out where we're at. Father, we just lift you up. Thank you that you are king of the universe, that you've called us into a relationship with you that uh, is not contingent on on us but is all your work we thank you that you are a God of grace and you have uh, have done a work uh, in us uh, and we pray for for your word to be spoken that it would not return void but it would come with power in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Happy New Year, everybody! Here's your water. Yeah. Just put a dollar in the altar. <laughs> 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 ah, Happy New Year! Happy uh, happy, thank you. Happy New Year! Yeah. Today is well, actually, at sunset tonight begins Rosh Hashanah, which is the New Year for the biblical calendar in case none of you knew that (laughs) so um i thought i'd mention that uh since there are actually five different um names for rosh hashanah uh which is rosh hashanah means head of the year beginning of the year um and since we're in psalms chapter five instead of nine uh i thought i'd mention that uh, the other names are uh, Yom Hatzolm, which means the birth of the world. And it's tradition, obviously we don't know, but uh, that that creation began on this day. And some some of the Jewish tradition is that that uh, humanity was was birthed on this day. Um, it's also called uh, Yom uh, Hiskaron which is the day of remembering. And it's a day where we're supposed to go back and remember our history, remember what's happened through the year, just like we do in our normal Gregorian calendar, right? Got to remember the year and look forward to the new year. Um, but specifically, uh, the next name is Yom Hedon, which is the day of judgment, which reminds us why we're looking back because there is a judgment coming forward. Um, it's also Yom Tron, which is the day of the sounding of the trumpets. And we all know what happens on the trumpets. Although when the last trumpet sounds, we're, uh, it's the call of the Lord. Um, so this is the beginning of all the fall feasts that are getting ready to start tonight. Uh, so all the the fall feasts start with trumpets, 
then there's a basically a week of celebration and we blow the trumpets and, and think about all that God's done in your past and all that there is in store. And then the next feast is actually a fasting day. It's the Day of Atonement where we're called to fast. It's the only scriptural reference in the Bible that calls you this day you're going to not eat anything. And you just fast and repent. So once a year, that's a tradition um, that is, is in Leviticus. And then finally, there's booths. And I think it's really interesting that these fall feasts tie really closely to the book of Revelation, um, which has some some overarching things. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, what do you see first? You see the seals and then the trumpets, right? And then after the trumpets, there's this presentation of everybody giving an account, making an atonement for their sins. Either you're in the book of life and God has already made that atonement, or you're not and you're going to atone for your own sins. And then finally, the Feast of Booths talks about God fellowshipping with us and coming having having real life. And it, it speaks of the millennial kingdom um, and how he's going to reign physically on this earth. And we're looking forward to that. But having said that, I want you to think about Psalms 5 in light of that, since it's, you know, this time of year. Um as we go through it. So, verse 1. For the choir director for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. It's interesting that this this flute word is only here uh, in, in all the Bible. This is the only actual way that this is written. Um, flute is used throughout the Bible, but this is specifically a brass instrument Um which some people think that the uh, some of the trumpets on the Day of Trumpets are also brass trumpets, but it's specifically shofar as well. So I wanted to look at that for just a second before we delve into this, because you know, anytime there's one word that's different, I think it's it's neat to kind of explore it. Um, so. As we think about that, there are other mentions of the flute, which you'll see. Isaiah 30, 29 says the flute is used in keeping the festivals, which kind of ties us into what we're talking about. Um, Isaiah says that as they marched up to the mountain of the Lord and in their celebration and their joyful uh, entrance into the millennial kingdom, They'll play flutes. Uh, Samuel 10 says when uh, Saul is uh, first anointed king, what does he go out? He goes out and meets these prophets, and they're said to be playing flutes and music, and he gets the anointing of the Spirit on him. So there's a connection here between celebration with flutes and the coming of the Holy Spirit in some way. 
First uh, Kings mentions flutes being played when the king uh, Solomon is anointed. Uh, they're they're rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook. Um, which is interesting, you know. In Matthew, it talks about when when Christ comes, the earth is going to shake. Uh, and once again, referencing some of these fall feasts that that tell us about the end of the world. Um, Daniel notes in Neb- uh, in the worship of the, of, uh, the golden idol, they are playing flutes when they call the people to bow down to the golden idol. So this is traditionally a thing related to worship, even in pagan societies. Um, in Jeremiah, uh, the use of the flute is described as is describing the moaning of the heart uh, over the destruction of Moab. So there's a sense that the flute is also a sad instrument. So it, it, it talks about destruction. Um, in lost in place. Matthew, the flute is uh, they're playing flutes. When uh, the, the he comes, Jesus comes in, and the daughters died, and everybody's mourning over the death. And what happens? He walks in, and there's a resurrection. So the one reference in the uh, the the Gospels ties the flute to the resurrection. It's kind of interesting. Um, Revelation 18 is the only other New Testament uh, reference. And it says, after the destruction of Babylon, there will no longer be any flutes heard in that land. That it's going to take away the joy of Babylon because of the judgment that's come upon them. So as we look at this chapter, there's a lot of connection going on. Just in this intro, this is an accompanied by a flute which should bring all these images into your mind. Often it doesn't, because we don't think on that grand of a scale. But I want you guys to think in that in that term. Um, so let's get started. For the choir director, for the flute accompanies a psalm of David, give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King, my God. For to you I pray. This give ear to my my words is literally cup your hand over your ear and 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 listen carefully to what I have to say. It's it's a recognition that that David is saying, I'm just this little bitty voice compared to you, Lord. And maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I, I just I want to lay out this presentation to you. I want you to hear what I have to say. And you decide. So he's calling on the Lord to hear him. And I I, I think uh, he says, consider my groaning. It's interesting um, that the Bible talks about groaning. You know, there's a point um, in Romans, it says, when we don't know how to pray, that the Spirit will pray for us with groanings. And for David, 
he did, he just didn't know what to say. He was frustrated with life and the situations that he was in. And he saw the things around him and he said, there's something's just off. I don't understand it. And for us, often when we see the world around us, we get that frustration. We get that confusion. Why, why are things the way they are? I mean, you can get depressed and frustrated and overwhelmed by life. And it says, when that happens, God gives you someone to come alongside you that will groan over the same struggles you have and will intercede for you and bring peace to your life. Hear the cry, the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. It's important to um, have the right attitude and perspective when we pray. Uh, David acknowledges God and King as his authority. Um, You know, sometimes when we pray, we can pray in a way that we're, you know, either when you're in public prayer, sometimes you pray for everybody around you so that everybody around you hears what you're saying and and you kind of, they can learn from your prayer. It's the teaching prayer. Oh, Lord, help Johnny. (laughs) In whatever struggle they're going in. And, you know, that's not what's happening here. There's another prayer where we start talking about whatever struggle we're facing. And it's really not prayer. It's self-talk, which is, you know, in in rest care, that's that's our term for uh, counseling ourselves and talking yourself down from whatever emotional struggle you're having. You self-talk and you chill out so you don't beat your client (laughs) or do something (laughs) stupid. Um, A lot of parents need to learn some self-talking sometimes, Uh, but that's not the issue here. When we pray, having a right reality to who we're praying to changes everything. And David makes a point of starting his prayer in a right heart. Real prayer is before God. It is us communing with the God of the universe. It is us having a real conversation with the king who is our friend but he is way more than that and when we come before him we need to come with the right heart my king my god it's you who I'm praying for it's you who I'm asking for help Hebrews 11:6 says he who comes to god must believe that he is We can't really come to God until we understand who he is. We can't truly pray until we first believe. And second, in the same verse in Hebrews, it says, must believe who he is, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What's the point of calling on God if you don't believe he's going to help you? What's the point? 
David knows. He's my help. He's my shield. This is the only means to get through life. He created me. And he wants to sustain me. So he calls on God. And he says, you are the one I'm praying to. Verse 3 says, in the morning, Lord, I'll, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I'll order my prayers to you. And eagerly watch. You know, often we start out our day anxious, ready to go do whatever we have to get done. You know, we got to get to work, got to get to school, got to get to wherever it is, get dressed, go, and it's a rush. David says, I'm going to make a point of starting my day this way, Lord. I want you to hear my voice. I want to have this relationship with you. My day starts out in your presence. And in the same way, you know, as we look at a new year, that's what it's about. It's about starting new in the presence of God. You'll hear my voice in the morning. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly wait, eagerly watching. You know, he starts his day saying, here's what's on my plate. Lay it before you. And then he says, I know that you're faithful. So I'm going to look forward to what you're going to do in my life today. I'm going to look forward to the way you're going to answer my prayers. You know, God can't answer a prayer until you pray it. Right? You can't look for a result until you've asked for a result. And that's what David says. He says... I'm going to start my day off anticipating your action in my life. And and that's really the way we should start our days. Anticipating God to do something. Watching for it. Excited. One of the other things that's interesting about um, the feasts is that they're days known as days to watch. It's an interesting idea. There are days we're supposed to pay attention to. Isn't it fascinating that the spring feast, Passover, the first, is the same day Jesus died for our sins to be the Lamb of God. We were to watch that day. Why? Because it's the day he was going to make a make pay for our sins. That's an amazing, fascinating thing. When I look at these feasts, and I look at the first set of feasts, my faith is just strengthened so much. Because he says, watch this specific day in history. I'm going to do something. And he did. And we 
you know, when you look at that, you're like, wow, there's been an accomplishment happened. <coughs> Same thing with the other, the rest of the, the spring feasts. We have the day of Passover. What follows after? First fruits. The resurrection of Christ, the first fruit from the dead. The day of Pentecost. All these people start speaking in tongues and prophesying and the Spirit comes upon the church for the first time in the world. There's prophecy that is fulfilled and a reason we need to watch these times. And there's the second set of feasts. He says, I'm going to pray for it. I'm looking forward to what you're doing. I'm excited about it because I know who you are. You're God and you're king. You're the Lord. You created it all and you have a plan and you've set it out. And I'm excited because I want to see what you're going to do. I don't understand it. And, you know, the Jews didn't understand what was going to happen to fulfill those first feasts. And we don't quite understand what's going to happen to fulfill these next feasts. I think it's really fascinating. And I'm excited to see what's going to happen. I think Revelation has some pictures to reveal for us that may tie in really, really closely. But we should be watching eagerly for God to do something each day. And we should ask him, God, I need your help today. And at the end of the day, we can go back and say, hey, wow, look, here's where he, he helped me here and here and here and here. I didn't have time to do this, I got, but yet I still got to do it. You know, one of the things we were talking about this morning um, in the Sunday school class was uh, obedience. And we were talking about the two guys that, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the dad comes and he's like, hey, I need you to work in the field today. And one says, no, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> the other one says, okay, and then doesn't do it. <laughs> which one was obedient which one was faithful which one was saying hey I had more time than I thought I had it's the one that went and did it why because the reality of situation empowered him to do what he was called to do He's told, go do this. And he thought, I don't know if I got time. (laughs) But really, yeah. You have time for what you're called to. God's going to provide you with what he wants you to do and then provide you with the means to do it. All we have to do is watch for it and anticipate that he's going to do that. Verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful should not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Now he totally changes his mood here. First he's going to watch. But now he's going to look at the character of God. You know, for David, he was in a culture 
in a a world that was all about idolatry. That was about other gods you had to make sacrifices to. You had to do all these works for him to even listen to you or hear your voice. He says, you don't take pleasure in evil. It's not about manipulation with you. And so I don't have to be that way. The God of righteousness is just. He's loving. And he simply requires our humility. Evil can't remain in the presence of a righteous God. And this is the problem that Daniel or that David has. He says, I'm going to start to look for what you're going to do. But I look around me, and there's wickedness, and there's evil. And I'm not sure what to do about it. And, and I know your character. Your character says, I don't want anything to do with that. Psalms uh, 147, he goes on and says, uh, says he favors those who fear him and wait for his loving kindness. You don't take pleasure in wickedness or no evil dwells in you. So what does he want? Ezekiel says God desire, God's desire is that the wicked turn from his wicked way and live. For David, he says, I know there's wickedness and evil around me. And it says he had a heart after the Lord. And he wanted to see that change around him. He wanted to see people changed. Isaiah says God's had enough of our worthless offerings during the feasts. It's useless. I want a humble heart, a broken spirit. I don't want you just doing things because that's what's right to do. I want you to do it because you love me. The boastful shouldn't stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Proverbs says the proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. What's the problem? It's that we have a wrong heart. We're about ourselves. We're about what we want. We started our day off with the wrong heart. David says, I don't want to be that. I don't want to start my day off with the wrong heart. I don't want to start anything because I know who you are and what you desire from me. I don't want to be boastful. I know you've put me in a position to be the ruler of Israel. 
I don't want to be proud. I want to be broken. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. It's interesting that he ties deceit or lying with bloodshed and murder. It's interesting that putting it in context in the kingdom deception relates to espionage. It's an attempt to undermine the ruler. What he's saying is when you lie, when you speak falsehood, you're undermining the God of truth. And you're, in essence, rebelling against him. You're in the act of creating an espionage against God. That totally puts truth into a whole nother light. It's the opposite of what he's called us to. If he's the God of truth, and he's called us to be truthful, we're to be the ambassadors of God. And we better be truthful in our actions, in our words. Because that's what we're called to be about. He says, I see this, and I know your character. Verse 7, but as for me, as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I'll enter your house at your holy temple, and I'll bow in reverence. I don't want to be boastful. I don't want to be taking pleasure in the wrong things. I want to enter your house and I know I can't do it apart from your love and kindness because I'm not right. I have no means to come into your presence because I know there are aspects of me that are false. There are aspects of me that do take pleasure in wickedness. There are parts of me that are just sinful. And I need you to change that in my life. Your loving kindness is the only means that I could enter your house. And so David says, I, I just throw myself down before you. The only way to come into God's presence is prostrate in submission. Because he is the ruler. He is God. And that's what he calls us to. His humility and brokenness. And honesty. With ourselves. Say, we're not worthy. We're not perfect. James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He goes on to say, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, 
and he will lift you up. There's a promise to keep. I'm looking forward to that. You know, David says in the morning, I'm going to order my prayer and I'm going to look forward to what you're going to do. What's the promise? What's the prayer? God, I want to be humble. I want to be broken before you and I want to do your will. What's the promise I'm going to look for? When he lifts me up. When he accomplishes that in my life. And as I see that happening, Jude says, he's the one that makes me stand. When I see him making me stand up, despite my stupidity, (laughs) despite my own problems, I know that God's doing something. And that's exciting. Verse 8, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Because of my foes, make your way straight before me. The reality is we see uh, evil. As we see it, we often respond in a prideful way. We're like, oh, we have this self-righteousness. And he says, we have to be led by the Lord in righteousness. We've got to be careful the way we follow God. Not in pride, remaining in that humility that he's called us to. Lead me in your righteousness. So we don't fall into the same trappings that we see around us. Because that's the problem. Sin wants to trap you and keep you in submission to itself. The flesh is trying to destroy us. And he says, my desire is that you lead me in righteousness. And the only way that I can be led is if all these other distractions in front of me are taken away. Because I know I'm really easily distracted. I'm like the little dog going, squirrel, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> we promised to lead us. And we need our path cleared before us. So part of his prayer is, Lord, clear a path. So that as I go out through this day, I can do what you called me to do. Make it straight. Lead me. Matthew 6 says, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's exactly what David's saying. I want to first seek you as king in my life and be led by you in righteous behavior. Matthew earlier in chapter 5 says, blessed are those actually Jesus says it in Matthew blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the promise? They'll be satisfied. What's your hunger for today? 
Where did you start this morning? Hungering. For David, he started his morning hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And that should be our attitude as we start our days. Romans 6.16 says obedience leads to righteousness. As we're obedient, as we're faithful to do what he's called us to do, as we submit to him and allow him to lead us, we're made into righteous people. We do what's right. Our behavior becomes right. The reality is if we ask God to lead us, the assumption is that we're going to follow. Not run ahead. Not get distracted by the squirrels. But to follow. Psalms 23. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want... And he leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his namesake. Because he's tied his name to you. That's why he's leading you. If you claim Christ, you claim his namesake as Jesus, my king. He wants to lead you. And he promises to lead you. Not just because of you, because of his namesake. And that's exciting. It's not our work. He's going to do it in us. Paraphrasing 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, God leads us in his triumph in Christ, manifesting the knowledge of him in every place. The way that he leads us shares Christ everywhere. If we're following, both to the saved and the perishing, it's going out everywhere. That's a promise. He's going to lead you. We need to ask, Lord, clear a path. Go before us so that as we follow, we don't get distracted. And he's faithful to do that. And that's exciting. Verse 9, there's nothing reliable in what they say. That is the world. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat's an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall in the multitude of their transgressions. Thrust them out. For they are rebellious against you. It's pretty harsh words. He says, the reality of the world is it's false to the core. It's interesting that Matthew, uh, when Jesus talks to the, the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, he uses almost the same 
imagery. Their mouth is an open grave. Romans 3.13 quotes the verse and talking about the nature of fallen men. There's nothing reliable in the world. It's just destruction. They want to flatter you and deceive you. We're not to be about that. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. You know, we often see people fall into their own traps. David calls for justice. He sees horrible things around him. He says, I want to see your justice too. And for us, as we see this world fallen, there's a part of us that should cry out, how long are you going to let this continue the way it is? How long are you going to let the evil rule in this world? How long are you going to let the rebellion continue? You claim to be king. You're the ruler. Why let this rebellion continue? Because that's really what it is. The fallen nature is a rebellion against God. David calls for justice. The issue is not just something wrong in the behavior, but it's an accumulation of transgressions. A multitude of sins that that basically come to the point of evil. Samuel says rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. So we rebel against God. It's interesting. David says, you hold them guilty. It's not our job. It's not our job to go around and judge the whole world. And often, people in the church think it is. It's not. It's God's job. He is the judge. It's his justice. You hold them guilty. Romans 12 says that we are not to avenge ourselves, but to leave that to God. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The reality is judgment is coming. You know, when we talk about the trumpets, the time of these last feasts, the day of atoning for your sin. It's coming. There's only one answer. Verse 11, 
Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. May you shelter them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Interesting. He clo- he he uses this word shelter, which is the same word for tabernacle. When the last feast is about God coming and tabernacling, sheltering us. That's exciting. The only answer to the judgment of God is his mercy. You know, when we say, how long, O Lord? He says, just a little longer. Because not everybody's been saved that I know will repent. As we read through Revelation, there's a point where he just devastates the world. And it says they still wouldn't repent. The whole world doesn't care. God's waiting for us to repent. That's what he's calling us to. So that we can be glad and take refuge in him. So we can sing for joy. And we're sheltered and held in his power in his glory it's interesting Matthew says that Jesus uh, teaches about a new heart that he wants to give to us a heart that is able to love our enemies not just say judge them where we can take refuge in the cross. Peter 4 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. And whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's the desire we should have for each other. To build each other up in faith. To cover up all messed up things in life. And love one another. Because that's the message of the cross. I love you despite who you are. And I forgive you. And the way that we live life now, under the forgiveness of Christ should be the same with every person around you. We are called to have that same heart of forgiveness to the people around us. Because we need to be humbled and say, Lord, I'm no better than anybody else. And when we do that, he lifts us up. Now, Verse 12, for it is you who bless the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. David ends his call, his prayer, expressing his trust in God. You are the one that I'm trusting in. May his favor rest on you today. May you be blessed and counted righteous.
exercising faith, believing God today, making this a new year for you. That's our prayer for you. Let's pray. Father, give us your heart for the people around us. A heart that sees the truth. That's honest with ourselves first. Admitting our own failures. And is real with the people around us. That judgment is coming. And God calls us to submission to his authority because he loves us. And as we know, you are just and holy and you can't dwell among sin. You can't continue to allow evil to reign. Lord, we don't want that to be our lives. We want you to lift us up out of the evil of this world. Out of the condemnation of our own behavior into grace and mercy. Father, forgive us and glorify you today. In Jesus' name, amen.